You're listening to One Good Take, the podcast that delves into the nitty-gritty of film development and distribution and explores the often elusive chemistry that brings a film to life. By the end of each new episode, my hope is that you will have gleaned some new and creative ways of going about film finance and feel freshly motivated. I have with me today writer-director, producer Sean McConville of Frenzy Films. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Hey, Nick, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah, in spite of everything, <laughs> God, <laughs> the lockdown, etc. So, um, yeah, you run Frenzy Films with Stephanie, uh, another writer director from France. Uh huh. Stephanie Joaland. Um, we uh, met in Los Angeles uh, about ten years ago or so, and we had a shared passion for uh, similar films, specifically, but also, you know, uh, shared love of directors Hitchcock and Spielberg and Chris Nolan and so on. So, um, so we, you know, as we wanted, both wanted to be writer directors, we, um, formed friendly, friendly films to, to, you know, pr- produce each other's movies, uh, because we have that shared love of uh, genre films and, 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 uh, particular directors. Yeah. I mean, so you were out in LA, weren't you, uh, on, you were at UCLA? Yeah, I went to UCLA, I think it was 2002, for a couple of years uh, to study screenwriting uh, at UCLA. And um, I'd, I'd already graduated from doing a Master of Arts in Screenwriting from, from the London College of Communications in London. Um, so yeah. the program I did at UCLA was a certificate program, but essentially it's the same as their MFA in screenwriting without the academic uh, studies. Uh, so you, have, you, you you get taught by the same professors uh, and tutors and so on. Um, but as I already had an MA in screenwriting, I, I didn't go through that again. I just did the uh, certificate program. But I did it for two years, and the second year was like an advanced professional program in screenwriting. Um, but I'll talk more about it as we go on. But in short, you know, I loved being in LA so much and uh, from a, you know, personal perspective, but also the business. Um, So I ended up staying there about eight or nine years, I think it was, before I had to leave ultimately because of visa reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And you started working as a special effects tech, yeah, on on big budget films like Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, James Bond movies. Yeah, exactly. Um, Uh, Initially, I was a a standby prop person, which means you're literally, you know, dealing with all the props. Uh, And that's, that's a really fun job, because you're literally standing next to the director or or the camera, um, being on on standby. So every time, um, you know, an actor picks up a glass and and takes a drink uh, of water, let's say, you know, the standby prop person has to go and redress the props. Uh, and the set yeah each take so you have to be on standby all the time and I really love that job because you got to see how directors work you know you're obviously working with um and at that level it was obviously working with George Lucas and other Michael Winterbottom and other notable directors um but I went from doing being a standby prop into working on uh the model department on GoldenEye um which then traversed into working on special effects for Tomorrow Never Dies and uh, uh, ultimately uh, the Star, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. And when I say special effects, I mean 
physical effects like you know wind rain snow blood uh, any stunts yeah, um, yeah practical effects not not visual effects um yeah, yeah. but again that's that's a lot of fun because it's all captured in camera um so yeah. you're you know you're there with the director and the stunt choreographers and so on doing all these effects which was a lot of fun yeah yeah cool and so that's quite a transition isn't it really from uh, you know prop department to writer certainly writing i mean maybe not so much directing or producing but um don't you don't often find people in props who are uh, writing yeah but, uh, so so you were you writing early on or even during all that those years of, of working on set with props no not at all i you know i didn't even know what a screenplay was uh i mean firstly i i got into this later in life than than, than a typical person who would love film would uh in my mid-30s so uh and i had these you know practical skills of welding and carpentry and uh building uh trade type skills that transitioned easily into uh movies um and the reason i got a job uh was because in the mid 90s there was a shortage of film crew because there was a lot of studio movies being made uh in the uk at the time i think because of the strength of the pound against the dollar or the other way around um, so there was a shortage of crew, so they recruited people from outside of the industry, and I was one of the fortunate people that, you know, got got a job working on these big studio movies. And yeah. once I was on there, I just loved it so much that I really kind of knuckled down and made sure I, you know, kept getting onto new films because, as you know, working on a film, it's a short window of time, even even the bigger studio movies, you know, it might be three or six months maximum. So once you made that kind of transition to writing, did you start making shorts, for example, while you were out in, in LA or? Not at all. I mean, I mean, firstly, I, I, as I said, I didn't know what a script was when I worked on these movies, but I started reading the screenplays and I just fell in love with, with scripts for some reason. I thought, oh, that looks easy. I, I'd like to do that. Obviously, it's not easy. It's incredibly <laughs> difficult. Yeah. But uh, that's how I, you know, that's what I thought. And, and probably uh, it wasn't the best decision to make. But as soon as I realized, wow, I want to write, you know, I decided to take a, a sort of year sabbatical after Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, because I earned good money on that project. I was on that one about nine months. Um, mm. I took a, a year off to start writing screenplays and I knew absolutely zero. Um, but I, I loved it so much that I applied to do an MA in screenwriting at LCC, London College Communications, um, and I did that for two years. And as soon as I graduated there, um, I applied to UCLA and got in. And so suddenly I'm in LA now after quite a few short years, really. Um, yeah. But in answer to your question about shorts and so on, no, I didn't really. I Basically, I did do one short film that wasn't intended to show anyone. It was really to find out if I was interested in directing, if I was comfortable directing and so, you know, I cast it with my friends who were actors in LA, uh, you, some, yeah. you know, whatever camera I could get. I didn't worry about makeup and hair and costume. It was literally just directing actors to see uh, and scenes yeah. to see if I was comfortable. Needless to say, I absolutely loved it. So after being in LA for about, I, I think, four or five years at this time, I, the moment, and, and I had some managers and, and some options and some major disappointments as well in terms of the screenwriting career 
um, things that get very close and don't happen. So I woke up frustrated one day and thought, you know, how someone by then in my early 40s, how someone going to get to direct a feature film who's in their 40s, who's never done commercials before or short films or TV. Uh, and and the, the strategy I came up with uh, was to write a script that could be made for, you know, very minimal funding. And so I wrote this yeah. script called Deadline that, had, that was literally four actors at a house um, with no effects. It was a ghost story. So, you know, supernatural or ghost story effects is literally just someone standing at the end of a corridor or something with some prop. So, you know, the effects were, um, it was a genre film, but there were no effects or only in camera. No CGI, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I I wrote this film and I had someone that was going to fund it for $50,000, but um, I showed it to someone and they showed it to someone and, and before I knew it, um, I was on, on set making the movie for $2 million. And I can talk about that journey because it, it, it happened very, very quickly. And that's one of the my regrets or one of the problems with what happened. Uh, it, it, we basically, it happened so quick. It was a first draft and it happened so quickly for whatever reason. Someone loved the script and had access to the funding. Um, but what what got overlooked was the most important aspect in in writing which is develop development yeah yeah so the screenplay everything took off the actors the funding everything so fast that as i said before i knew it, i was on on set doing pre-production um but it was a first draft script and i'm very proud of the film for lots of reasons we had an amazing um cast amazing uh, cinematographer production designer and so on but and i didn't a, a good job directing i'd like to think but but the fact is the script was not strong enough and that you know yeah. if it had been stronger the idea was great but the character development and the script development yeah. wasn't strong enough which if it had been stronger if i'd have put more time and energy into that you know i think i'd be a lot further along in my career given that opportunity yeah. i had yeah so talk talk me through it how you went about getting the funding for it you said you met one person and that that sort of snowballed into you know a few more thousand yeah, a thousand well, it, you got to two million it, it's a, it's a kind of i mean I, I had lots of near misses up to this point so i don't want it to sound uh too lucky because i i did work very hard and and had lots of opportunities that didn't work out but this is one that did and i'll tell it as quickly as possible so someone um saw a posting on craigslist uh that was looking uh someone was looking for a director for a psychological thriller for 1.5 million. And this, mm. my friend forwarded me that Craigslist ad and I responded to it and ultimately talked to the guy uh, that posted that. And I, we talk, I was in Portland at the time, so not in LA. We had a great conversation on the phone and he was very interested in me directing the film and uh, look forward to meeting when I was next in LA. But at the end of the phone call, I basically said, hey, if you're looking for any other projects, I've just written a, a script called Deadline with four actors in a house. It can be made super low budget. Would you, you know, would you be interested in reading that script? And he said, yes. And he called me the next, next day to say, I absolutely love it. I want to make this movie instead. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I said, okay, okay. great. Well, yeah. uh, when I'm in LA, let, let's definitely meet. So a week, a week yeah. later, I was in LA and we met. We had a great meeting, a sort of 12 hour meeting, both very excited. 
And uh, I'll try and speed it up a bit, but a week later happened to be the American film market, which is their version of, of Marsh Hayden yeah, film. Yeah, um, mm. And the producer went to the film market with a script uh, and he basically met someone in the first couple of days at, at the, uh, uh, the hotel there and pitched it uh, and sort of kind of bragging that he would get Winona Ryder in it. And yeah. the uh, investor who was from Malaysia said, okay, uh, I'll read the script tonight. And if I like it, and if you can get an actor like that, I'd love to finance it. So he read the script. He loved it. The next day we all met for sushi. And that was basically uh, an interview for me uh, presenting myself as the director and I did an okay job. So at the end of the um, dinner, he said, if you get Winona Ryder, I'll finance this movie for 2 million. Mm. So we, we, we spent, a few weeks trying to get Winona Ryder and then she signed on to do Star Trek. So we knew that wasn't possible. And in between yeah. uh, the three of us, we drew up a list of five other actors that we all approved, agreed with. Um, and Brittany Murphy, Murphy was on that list. And uh, when she read it, she said yes. And true to his word, the um, investor, you know, put the money in escrow. And a few weeks later, I was in Louisiana doing pre-production. So it, it really did yeah, yeah. happen, you know, very quickly. And yeah. everyone loved the script. And, you know, I don't want to criticize anyone, but the understanding of story and development, uh, probably there wasn't someone in the team at the time that um, un- understood that to the, the, the level of importance it is, including myself. Yeah. So the guy who took you on your project, uh, so he was an established producer, indie producer. No, it was his first film. Literally, um, he was a, okay. he was an executive uh, that had done well in the um, you know Silicon Valley. He was a great, okay. fantastic executive. Had a lot of um, enthusiasm and could could talk with not high net worth individuals and all those sort of things you need to do. Yeah, which we can yeah. also talk about because many filmmakers are creatives and they're not, not necessarily from that world uh the silicon valley type world if you like the entrepreneurial world sure. um but but the producer you know was was amazing in that respect um but it was his first film yeah you do hear of projects getting off the ground so much quicker in america you know if if the things if you know if somebody likes the script and you and so on things can move really quickly as you obviously found with this one um here it's it's like you know, you're still talking about the same sort of things a year later very often. Um, and certainly my experience and, and the experience of a lot of people I know. How, how do you find coming back here? Uh, is it sort of a bit like that, it, rather yeah, it, slow by comparison? You're absolutely spot on. It's for two reasons. Um, the first one is uh, in the UK and Europe as a whole, you know, they're, they're more snobbish, I think, towards um genre films um there yeah. is you know there is now art house genres or uh, elevated genre which you know it, it's still it's still uh <laughs> yeah. it's still a genre film but tends to have a more prestigious or established director attached if you like and and bigger yeah. named cast but but um to sort of soften it a bit um and festivals like Cannes and and toronto and so on are, are now um, except in these types of movies I've noticed in the recent years that, you know, it follows and blue ruin, um, the witch and the Babadook, these, yeah. these sort of movies, elevated genre films are, are starting to play at really prestigious festivals, which, which is great. But 
But yeah. just going back, yeah, so the twofold thing is that in the US, you know, they're more likely to be snobbish or not snobbish, that's the wrong word, but they're opposed to art house dramas or or or, or just drama films, whereas they really embrace um, genre films because, you know, they're easier to sell tickets to, they're easier to make uh, money on. And because for the most part in the US, all movies are made with private equity of some sort. There are state yeah. tax credits, but that's not soft money. That's that's just um, you know enticements to, for people to shoot in various states. So the money's private equity, which means they want that money back. You know, which means they yeah. want to make movies that uh, are, are more e- to make e- money, find, <laughs> yeah. uh, an audience, and sell tickets. Yeah, here because yeah. of. Um, Number one, they're, they're they're less opposed to genre movies. Uh, number two, they uh, so many uh, movies are financed uh, via soft money. You know, BFI funding, the tax credits. Yeah. Um, so that's why they they take longer um, to put together because you're you're typically unless you're already established as a director, you're typically in a situation where if you're making a zombie film or a vampire film um, or, or even an elevated genre film, you you need to find um, all of the money pretty much in private equity, which is very yeah. hard to do because people are risk-averse, you know, whereas when you get 20% or, or whatever it is from BFI, Creative England, um, some of the other film funds, you know, you're – you're offsetting the risk for the investors. Yeah, but again, yeah, it's sure. very difficult to do that if you're trying to make a movie that is an out-and-out genre film. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you go about it here? I mean, are you answering ads in Craigslist or putting them out there? Or well, how are you doing I, I it mean, here? The, the first thing is to you know design scripts if you like that that need less funding and and uh, and hope that the script is so good that ultimately you will get um, uh, a bigger a budget. Um, but in case you can't or if that doesn't work out, at least have a script that you can make if necessary for 50 or 100,000 or a quarter of a million. You know? And if that script is really designed well with that in mind, you know, with today's technology, you can make a movie that will look like it's millions of dollars uh, and because it's not so dependent a genre film on having names cast, you know that doesn't matter too much either. If you make a really good genre film, uh, provided the actors are really talented and right for the parts, it doesn't matter or matters um, less if if those actors are lesser known actors. Um, so the, you know the tricks really is to write something that's contained in a nutshell. You know with few cast minimal special effects, whether it's visual effects or practical effects, um, then, you know, if if you happen to hit, hit it out of the park with a script that everyone loves, you know, wins competitions, gets great coverage, then, you know, ultimately you may end up making it for one, two million in this country. Um, but it's really, it's really liberating to know that if, if you still have to get 50 to quarter of a million let's say, um, pounds in equity. But that's that's definitely a lot easier than getting, you know, 2.5 million or something, in my opinion. Yeah. So talk to me about your new project, The Last Moon. This is suspense horror film, isn't it? It's sort of in the vein of 10 Cloverfield Lane, you said. 
Um, where, where are you? Where are you with that one? Uh, well, we do have uh, investors for that. So I, I originally wrote it going back a couple of years uh, out of frustration to make it for a hundred thousand, uh, and it is um, you know four or five actors at a remote um, house in the woods, uh, but there is a werewolf creature in it, uh, and. So the the creature effects is the challenge in that movie, but we've care, carefully written it where you know that that only happens later in the script, and we'll be using a lot of fog and light in effects um, and trickery to 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 get around that as much as possible. But this is this is as I said a few minutes ago. You know, if you happen to write a script that is really really good, even if it's contained in a genre film, um, you may get other interest. That means you don't have to do it for such a low budget as, as intended. And so this is a script that, you know, we've worked hard on developing and by all accounts, it's very, very good, very well developed. Yeah, you had it sent, I think you sent it out to LA, didn't you, to have a, a sort of script reader to report on it. You, you got really positive, a, a big recommend on that. Did you send it to other consultancies or, as well? Yeah, uh, you know, I've used Bulletproof Consultancy and We Screenplay and it was on top of the yep. red list. And I got great reviews on the blacklist and so on. So, you know, it, it's across the board. I've had really, you know, but and that's meant we've found um, a couple of investors slash exec producers in in uh, in the US that want to put in, you know, uh, a fairly significant amount of money. I mean, not millions, but but up to half a million. And then yeah. we will, um, you know, make leverage that amount as much as possible with um, getting a sales agent attached and, and utilizing the UK tax credits here, which I believe is about 20% uh, of 80% of the, the budget uh, or 25% of 80% of the budget. So, you know, that's another 100,000 right there. Um, so we've been very sort of careful about it be, be, because we also believe we can get a really strong cast for this because though it's, it's, it is a werewolf film, that's, it's really a, a drama about two brothers so there's a lot of sort of depth and substance to it um and because uh one of these characters believes they're a werewolf but schizophrenia runs in their family you know we're never sure if this character is uh a werewolf or if if he's uh mentally unwell or if if he's playing a trick on his brother or if there's that act uh, actually, uh, another reason which there is, which is a big twist at the end of the film. So okay. there's a lot of kind of drama and depth to it. Um, uh, you know, like the Babadook's a really good reference film. You know, that's really yeah. um, a, a sort of monster movie, but it's also really about a, a, a mother, you know, hating her own child and having a psychological breakdown. There, there's a sort of yeah, and it's grief, isn't it? It's, uh, it's about, about grief. grieving, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and blaming and anger uh, against your child and so on. And and you know, the, the, there's universal themes and meaning in in that film. And uh, you know, the witch is another good example. So you know, that's what we're trying to do, and and that's what makes this, even though it's a, a werewolf film, uh, I believe, an elevated suspense thriller. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, with a with a monster in it. Yeah. So, did uh, COVID arrive just as you were making moves on cast, or it, it, or did it, you manage did. to attach anyone? Yeah. It did. Right? Yeah, it yeah. did. We, Big interruption. Yeah, absolutely. We we, <laughs> were, we you know we had a casting director and we were ready to get going on that. Uh, we had a list of actors that we wanted to approach, 
Um, and, you know, we were aiming fairly high because that would, again, help us uh, leverage what, what money we do have agreed uh, even more so. Um, you yeah. Because, as you know, you can never have enough time or no, enough money to make a movie. Um, yeah. Who's your casting director? Oh, Shakira Dowling. Okay. Yeah. Is she, she's based here, isn't she? I, yeah. I seem to know the yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. you know, that was before COVID happened. Uh, we, you know, we're really looking at that at the moment. So we're not, we're not sure it's will be the same casting director um, yeah. because we're looking at, you know, casting it in Los Angeles as well. Right. Um, okay. you know, and this is, you know, and there is that possibility. This we're still in discussions about this. Uh, again, it all went a little bit haywire with COVID-19. But one of the things we were discussing with the U.S. investors was actually making it in the U.S. because uh, it would easily translate to, um, you know, being a, a U.S. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, I'm very inspired by those original Universal monster movies and they're all uh, made in the US by Universal. And then we had the success of The Invisible Man, which is really inspiring. Yeah. Um, you know, because the, the sort of Hitchcockian um, suspense is is where I'm going as a director with this particular project. I, you know, I, when I first envisioned it, one of the thoughts I had was if Hitchcock or Polanski, you know, were to make a, mo- a werewolf movie, what might it be like? You know, and, and that's kind of, yeah. yeah, minimal characters, very suspenseful, very contained. Um, so that's what the angle I came at it. And, you know, as we've developed the script, you know, that's how it's kind of turned out. And that's why I also use 10 Cloverfield Lane as a, a reference film, because that that's very, very Hitchcockian. Yeah. Did you say this one 100K or is it, this started off as 100K is now? A much bigger project. yeah it, it started off at 100k and we've yeah. got um you know I, you can never say until it's in the bank so to speak or in escrow but we've got in principle uh, half a million dollars which is probably about four hundred thousand pounds now or 375 yeah. or whatever um and again we're trying to leverage that because we've got that amount of money you know it, it should make it easier for us to to be able to talk with sales agents and get a relatively prestigious sales agent on board for this type of movie, a sort of XYZ films or uh, A24 or An Altitude. Um, And and Yeah, have you reached out to any of these people uh, before attaching any cast or you just wait till you've got a name or two? I mean, that was the plan at Cannes. But, um, you know, okay. that, that, that changed as well, of course. So yeah, we yeah. were going to go yeah. to Cannes and we were going to go with our exec producers from the US, um, you know, who would literally be sat in the room there saying, hey, I'm willing to put in this amount of money on this film. We can essentially greenlight it. You know, we need someone like you to, you know, make it, make it uh, um, more, more interesting to, for other people to be involved and work with them to, um, you know, talk, discuss cast. How much, how much of the budget do you reckon is going to go toward cast? About a quarter, less than that? It, it would be about a quarter on that budget range. And yeah. uh, if, if we were going for a, a bigger cast, so to speak, you know, then that would go up, but also so would the overall budget. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, let's say it was yeah. a, ultimately a million, a million dollars or uh, 1.5 million, you know, it, the, it would probably scale up the same. So then the, the, um, it would still be a 20, 25% above the line for cast. 
um, but it would be more of a bigger budget. So have you started looking for locations here and uh, LA or, or is that all a bit on hold at the moment? I have a, an amazing location in, in Ireland uh, when we made the quiet hour, not, not, we made the quiet hour in Ireland, the location's not in that same place, but in Ireland, in Cork, we have an amazing uh, house that we have an agreed arrangement with the owner of the house. So that's one. I warmed on that just because um, the tax, you know, it's, it's more, you need a co-producing partner. It's a little bit more complicated to access all the tax credits there than it is in the UK. So we okay. also went scouting in Yorkshire and found a great place in Yorkshire. Um, uh, um, that's close to the uh, Northern Light Film Studios there, which we can use the, yeah. the studios as, a, as an office and for some green screen and so on. And we have an arrangement there. Um, but, but uh, you know, the we have someone looking for us in, in Los Angeles and in Texas as well, uh, where, where one of the investors is from. So uh, it's kind of open at the moment. You know, we, yeah. you know it's, it's the... It's not the major part of this project in a way because it because we only do need one location. So it's not like we need yeah. 30 locations. Um, yeah. We can keep it fairly flexible and open until other things come come more into focus. Sure. And being one location, I guess, yeah, I guess your schedule is quite, quite nice and manageable, like three weeks, just under four? Uh, I'd, like to sh- I'd like four weeks just because... Yeah. Um, you know, to, to get have, right. yeah, to get it get it right yeah. and have time to work, yeah. get performances with the actors and so on. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, what's your day to day like with COVID and the lockdown or semi lockdown, whatever it is these days? Uh, I don't think Boris knows. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Well, on one level, it hasn't really changed. On another level, it changed dramatically. So, the the, the part that hasn't changed is that I usually you know, work from home, uh, writing uh, scripts, developing scripts with Stephanie. We both work very hard on each other's scripts as each other's uh, development executive. So, and we have about five or six projects that are at a good stage of development. So we work um, very hard at that. Uh, and also you can do so much from IMDb Pro and and, and, and the internet uh, from home. So yeah. that, has stayed the same. It hasn't really changed. The part that dramatically changed was that we were going to go, be going to um, Cannes for the film market. We were going to be going... Our other project, ICE, has just been selected into four co-production markets all in July, believe it or not. So Frontieres in Montreal, uh, Busan in South Korea, the Sofia Film Meetings in Sofia, and uh, the Film Market Hub, which is in London. Now, they're all online now, but they would have all been um, all over the world, basically, and we would have been uh, traveling a lot going to those uh, markets, uh, plus other festivals we wanted to go to. So that's, that's the thing that's all changed. You know, we would have been traveling a lot more to do with the film business, um, but now uh, there's still a lot of work involved in prepping for those meetings, um, creating um, video presentations for the projects um but of course it's all online now yeah so what are when you say video presentations what, what do you mean you're like a zoom call where you talk through um a business pack or a lookbook or something like that yeah well well we you know each each co-production market has their own um 
you know, uh, a way of doing things. Some of the video presentations are five minutes, one's seven minutes, one's 10 minutes, for instance. So you have to record a video presentation, uh, which is the filmmakers talking about the script, you know, uh, Stephanie, the director in this case, talking about how uh, her vision for the film, uh, pitching it, talking about the characters, and then showing visual uh, information like the pitch deck, um, lookbooks and, and uh, reference imagery and um, footage from other reference films. And you compile, compile that all into a five to ten minute long video and then the attendance of the film market will watch that and if it appeals to them, you'll then have one-on-one meetings with, with the uh, executives. Okay. How, how do you find out about this sort of thing it sounds quite a useful way of pitching your material where did you go to uh, get started with that pitching to all these different copro it's generally announced in the trades uh screen international or the hollywood reporter and so on um, variety they'll always announce uh just like festivals announce when they're opening for um for submissions um you know the other one is the european genre forum uh, which takes place in three countries. I think it's uh, Estonia, Tallinn, Estonia, um, Amsterdam, and I can't remember the other country. It might be uh, Poland. But, you know, they announce in the trades that they uh, are opening for submissions and then there's a submission process where you send your script and a pitch deck and bios of the whoever's involved in the project. And they select, uh, it's usually between 10 and 20 projects. And then they'll have a mini film market. It's it's kind of like uh, a can film market, but specifically for uh, genre films in this case. And usually it's, it's during a festival like uh, the fantastic film festival in Montreal um, with Frontieres the uh, Sofia meetings takes place during the Sofia International Film Festival and you would be flown there and put up and basically introduced to lots of um, executives, buyers, sales agents, yeah. producers and so on. Uh, the other good one we've been to a few times, which is fantastic and kind of a, an unknown secret in a way, is the Galway Film Flower. Okay. Um, so that takes place every July at the Galway Film festival or Galway film flower and during the festival they have a little mini market it takes place over two days and what's interesting even though it's in Ireland on the west coast of Ireland and Galway you you have quite a few executives from the US uh, that attend you know I've, I've met people from Paramount and Universal and so on there and also you'll get BBC Films and Film 4 and Working Title you know it varies every year but they get really great guests that come uh executives that go to those um markets yeah so when you go to those sorts of events do you arrange beforehand to meet certain people or do you just sort of mill around and hope to bump into people or go to specific events where you pitch your project yeah you it's figured out before you meet uh so basically they they'll have a list of maybe like 50 to 100 companies and executives and then you have to you look through that list and all the buyers of the executives and you will pick your kind of top 10 or 20 depending on the market you know top 10 exec- executives that you want to meet in the order that of preference and then they'll yeah. try and uh, the organizers will try and figure it out as best as they can that you get to meet the people you want to meet 
Um, okay. And so you can target, you know, who, who you want to meet. And for the most part, um, six or seven of the 10, let's say, or a dozen of the 20, um, you will have meetings with those executives or companies and then they fill in the, the rest with other other companies. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, in between all these meetings, there's a lot of, you know, cocktail parties and smoozing. And, and so you can, if you didn't get to meet Lionsgate, let's say, you can walk up to the executive and they're always friendly and always open to a, a quick discussion and if it's appropriate, you know, you can pitch yourself or your project and, and they'll r- arrange a side meeting during that, during the market yeah. with you. So we've done that a few times as well. So even if you don't get to meet your ideal um, companies, you can still, um, you know, mingle with, with, with all these people. Okay. And so because you can't do these things physically anymore, you're, you're doing a sort of equivalent online, right? At the moment, yeah, and and that would be very interesting because uh, I I have a theory, uh, and this is the same with film festivals that it could be a lot better for the filmmakers and the executives, for, and I'll explain why. Because let's say we're talking about uh, Frontieras at Montreal, you know, there's only so many people that are going to go to that market. You know, maybe they can't afford it, uh, even even the companies, or maybe they're doing something else. Uh, maybe you get two distributors from Mexico and three from Spain and four from Germany and so on um, that can physically be there. So the filmmakers can only meet whoever is physically there. But when it's online, if they were to open it out, you know, it's possible that you could have 100 distributors from uh, Mexico and 200 from uh, Germany and so on because, you know, all, all they're doing is literally clicking on a link um, to to either watch a presentation or or meet with the um, filmmakers, they don't have to leave their home. And uh, I was going to say the same with festivals. If you're at Cannes, you know, even if you have four sold out screenings, uh, and uh, and each um, screening has uh, has five hundred seats, this is the successful screenings. You know, you'd, your film would be seen by two thousand people, let's say. In theory, if they premiere that film online, 100,000 people could watch that film, right? Yeah, and they could yeah, actually yeah. pay for it as well. So that's really interesting to me because it actually it could be another form of distribution and it, and it also could be uh, a much more lucrative for the festivals because if they've got, well, let's say 10,000 people watching it versus, you know, 2,000 uh, and they're paying for it, then that's a lot of money, a lot of difference, and a lot of exposure for the filmmakers as well. So, um, yeah, you know, that, that's interesting to me. I mean, whether whether studios or big production companies will allow that, and the festivals, I, I don't know. But um, you know, a lot more people can watch your film online than there are seats in the cinema. Yeah. So, how's your next two to four weeks looking? Uh, what, what sorts of things are you tying up at the moment? as best you can? Uh, well, the next two to four weeks are, are really super busy because of the, this literally um, the preparation and, and the actual uh, meetings for the, these four co-production markets. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to have well over 100 meetings um, wow. with, okay. with executives, sales agents yeah. and so on. Um, but in addition to that, there's the actual, you know, preparation because we need to, you know, check out the bios of all the companies and know what their 
body of work is and figure out who it's appropriate for us to meet and, and vice versa. So a lot of lot of preparation, really, and, um, yeah. you know, making sure that we, we put our best foot forward. Yeah, sure. And you do that together, right? As a, you just sit together and talk into webcam. <laughs> yeah, we share the same office and um, it's our company. We're equal, equal partners in the company and we, we have equal kind of um, status is the wrong word, but we're, we're both writer directors and we're both producers on each other's projects. So we have, you know, three or four projects each that, that are in various stages of development. And, and because of the last couple of years in, in particular, we've worked very hard on the development side of things. You know, as I said earlier, five or six of those projects are, you know, presentable to the industry. Um, yeah. We're focused on, you know, the last moon at the moment and ice now that that's getting all this interest. Um, uh, and in the meantime, I also wrote um, big, big, uh, a script called 90 Minutes, which literally takes place over 90 minutes in real time uh, with mm. three actors in, in a vehicle. Um, and because I, I wrote that because when I saw that The Last Moon was going to take a slightly different path, meaning uh, we weren't making it for 100,000, we were going to let it grow and aim for a bigger cast and getting a sales agent attached and so on. And those things take uh, a longer time. It's a longer process. So in the meantime, I wrote 90 Minutes as a film that uh, I can just go out and make with a very small crew. And uh, that's that's something that as soon as COVID-19, when things are back to sort of uh, the new normal, um, we can we can go and make that film you know, and, and and have a bunch of people involved. We've already got a cinematographer and production designer and crew that are very keen to just go and make a movie and they're not, not worried so much about how much they get paid and what the budget yeah. is. They just want to go and make a movie, as I do. I really need to make another movie. Yeah. Um, so, so that was, um, you know, a project written with that in mind. And, and because it's so, you know, the, the reference films are like Buried and, um, phone booth and the disappearance of Alice Creed and so on. So I'm, I'm kind of less worried about what camera I use and how the camera moves and all, all those sort of things I care about that cost time and money in filmmaking terms. The way this is designed, it could be like five or six GoPros, you know, inside a car framing each other out and literally okay. film it in one take. It's that type of movie. Even so, I guess you need some sort of financing. Where, where do you think you would go for, for that? Yeah, well, I, I've got one of the investors of The Last Moon that we talked to about this 90 Minutes project is willing to finance that completely on, on the basis that you just need some money for food, uh, some you know, yeah. camera equipment, um, yeah. a, a very small crew, you know, whatever is necessary. I mean, it, it definitely could be made for like 10, 20,000 pounds if, if need be. And we have, we have that agreed. So have you got any ideas for cast yet? I guess you won't have to worry about names for that. You'll be just looking at good actors, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I may well, there, there's a couple of, uh, I won't say the names, but there's a couple of actors that um, I would love, you know, for me as the director, you know, the, when it comes to cast, it's a, it's a real game to, to play and, and really you need, it's, it's the distributors and <clears throat> sales agents that you're appeasing, but, you know, making it easier for them 
to, to sell the film or, or raise money to make the film. But for me as a director, the most important thing is that the actors are absolutely brilliant, talented, and right for the part. And I, I believe that if they are, it doesn't matter, and, and, and assuming the script's very good, it doesn't matter that they're lesser-known actors, that film will you know, be successful, whether it's at festivals or, or distribution or critically. And so that's what's important to me. And so even with The Last Moon, there are a couple of actors that I would really love to cast that are uh, lesser known, but in my opinion, extremely talented and could potentially have amazing careers. And so I, I'll probably go after those actors for 90 minutes and with a, with a sort of ulterior motive of you know, working with them and showcasing them for the um, executives in our, our investors in the US mm. and, and sort of using that to win, win them over. Yeah, do you have easy access to these actors? I mean, are they people you worked with before or associate people who've worked with people you know? Or uh, Well, I have worked with them actually in, in um, like uh, live script readings and okay. um, uh, on other people's projects. So yes, I definitely have. I haven't, I haven't, you know, presented this to them yet. I haven't, you know, I don't like to, I don't want to make any false promises to anyone because I know how things can change. But when we're ready to sort of uh, go, I'd reach out to these um, actors. And there's only three actors in the script. So even if they were to pass, um, you know, it won't be an issue casting this film. Yeah. And they're they're good, strong, dramatic uh, parts as well. And, you know, one of the good things about um, writing scripts that only have three, four or five or six actors in is each part is, is, uh, is a big part for the actor. And they can yeah. be very uh, dramatic, I mean, on the material. But they, you know, you're offering them like a lead part in the movie. Strong piece for an actor, yeah. Good. And would you look for if you couldn't get the people you wanted? Would you go through a casting director, or would you approach people directly? What would you do plan, as a plan B? Uh, not in this case. I would. I would definitely um, approach them directly in this case. And yeah. You know, and, and and if it's possible to do that, even with better known actors, I mean, maybe I, I shouldn't say this, but, you know, I I would think it's best if you know a friend of, um, you know, Tom Hardy or whomever, Hugh McGregor, and if it's appropriate, the key word is appropriateness, if it's appropriate to get them that script uh, via your friend who first would, you know, uh, and that friend is most likely an industry person anyway. Yeah you know, if they deem it appropriate to give the script straight to uh, a certain actor, especially when, give it a shot, when yeah. it's not about paying them a lot of money, when, when it is a, a tighter budget script and they might only be getting paid a, a smaller portion of their regular fee, um, if, if you can get them the script and they fall in love with the, um, the part, the script, and then maybe meet the director f- or the producer for a discussion, and if they're on board with that, then and they tell their actor to make it work, you know, the chances of it happening are like much, much higher than if you get that to, you know, Tom Hardy's agent, for instance. Yeah. Um, it's going yeah. to be a lot more difficult to, to win them over. It's going to be, you're, you're going to win them over, not with saying that we're making this movie in October and the fee is 50,000 quid. You're going to win them over uh, by, by saying, you know, Lionsgate are the sales agent and so-and-so's, um, it's got funding from BFI. And so you're right back to square one all the time where, 
you know, you're playing that game of getting, you know, altitude attached and and then yeah. altitude attached will be based on the fact that you need someone like Tom Hardy and and suddenly you're back to making a, a two to five million uh, uh, pound, pound film and and so yeah exactly yeah if it, if at all possible and appropriate to get it to brilliant well known actors that's that's a good strategy. So I guess with this uh, lower budget film, the the one taking place in a van or a vehicle of some sort. Is, okay, is that is that like a car that or or van that's that's moving or a stationary or how how is it? It's not a um, a road movie, perhaps. Uh, a little bit. It's um, okay. So the first ten pages of the script is a static car. It's about a limo driver who has to pick up a mysterious uh, passenger that's been prearranged, who prearranged his ride with a with a driver. And the first ten minutes is you know getting to know the driver. It happens when there's a very big important football match happening in 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 the 90 minutes of the movie and this driver has a huge uh gambling bet on the film so there's a lot of drama and uh high stakes with the the game in in and of itself and that's all set up in the first 10 minutes and then this mysterious passenger gets in the car and then they 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 begin this journey to a secretive uh place that the uh mysterious passenger won't um let let the driver know at first um and it and it turns out that before the 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 script began the movie begins the passenger has kidnapped the the driver's daughter off screen and holds her hostage somewhere in order to get the um limo driver to do something terrible on his his behalf and and then it kind of um uh, unravels from there and and then and so once they're on the road around the midpoint of the script, uh, they drive to this remote location, a, a country club, um, and parked in a sort of abandoned um, car park area. And so the last fifty pages of the script is literally in a static car. So it's only that from from the sort of page ten ish to page forty is the car moving and driving around. Yeah. And uh, and so. 50 or 60 pages of the script is um, static in a car. But, you know, there's yeah. a lot of drama, a lot of suspense. You know, it's a kidnapping hostage situation that involves, um, you know, the driver having to do something very, very terrible to in order to save his daughter. And, uh, you know, will he extricate himself out of that or not is the, you know, the sort of uh, climax of the movie. Yeah. And as I say, because of this high-stakes football match, you know, um, there's there's the sort of two parallel dramas running um, together that that are that are linked together. Is this a script you wrote, or you wrote with uh, Stephanie? Yeah, I wrote I wrote it. Um, Stephanie, of course, you know, heavily worked hard on the development of it, uh, as I do on her projects. But uh, but I, you know, we retain each other's our own you know writing and uh, credit. We don't co-direct or we don't co-write. Um, so. Uh, even though we have a, a huge input into each other's scripts, we keep our um, singular writing credit, so we're yeah. independently writer-directors. Yeah, so you're working with her sort of notes and feedback as opposed to her chipping in with some dialogue or, or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the, her ideas and my ideas in, in her screenplays, it would it would be easy to say those, those scripts were co-written, um, 
you know, in a way, but, but um, because we do trust each other and we do take each other's uh, notes on board. So, you know, my screenplays are heavily influenced by Stephanie and, and vice versa. But I, I think it's, it's important for our own sort of careers and our own aspirations to kind of retain that um, writer-director um, status. And I think that there's probably a lot of Hitchcock would be a great example, but there's, you know, and, and Christopher Nolan and his, his wife, you know, though they have these incredible partners that are equally um, involved in their stories, you know, uh, in terms of the trust and the uh, skill set to to really uh, have an input into into their stories, but the script's not is written by Chris Nolan, or in his case, maybe his brother too. Yeah. So you know that that's just our um, you know situation that we've agreed on for many years. Uh, the one area where we would co-write together, and we're interested in doing so, we've got a couple of projects brewing, is in te- TV. You know, okay. Because we don't necessarily have to direct those, um, you know, whenever yeah. we write a pilot or a, a TV series. Whereas when we write feature screenplays, we're writing them to direct. Yeah. Good. And, and so you've got this one on the go. Um, is Stephanie working on another project that you're, is a similar kind of model, you know, this sort of very contained low budget picture? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we actually called it the tandem project, meaning that we were writing them in tandem. Um, so she has uh, a, a project that uh, we have a late location for already. Someone's house in Palm Springs, uh, one of our exec producers um, with a pool that's very happy to have this movie shot at his house. So it's called The Crossing. Okay. Um, and uh, Stephanie got a, a little bit uh, waylaid because of all this uh, action going on with ice at the moment. Um, yeah. but, but, but yeah, the goal is, um, the plan is that, I mean, she's written a, a rough draft, but the plan is for Stephanie to also have this project that is just a, a few actors at a house, um, that, that can be made for, you know, food money and, um, camera equipment rentals and, or free cameras probably. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's an interesting world, you know, because the technology exists now for everyone, you know, to, to go and make movies for pretty much, uh, food money because you can shoot movies on, on smartphones or DSLR cameras and you don't even have to hire or rent those because yeah, it's very easy to find people that own red cameras or black magics or own all the equipment and just want to get out there and make movies and transitioning from short films or or they're bored doing reality TV or whatever it may be. And so, you know, provided the script's designed as such, you know, you really can make a movie for, um, you know, no money. And what, and, and again, it, it could, it could turn out that it ends up if someone loves the script and you get the right actors attached or producers, it, it could end up making it for millions. And that's actually what happened. There's two, two great articles by, um, so one, the director, sorry, the writer of Buried, uh, which is a, a Ryan Reynolds a movie where he's literally, it's just Ryan Reynolds in a coffin for 90 minutes. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, very good. And the writer wrote that script, you know, out of frustration, he said, I'm going to write a script that can be made for five thousand dollars yeah and 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 ultimately ended up being made for two or three million dollars with ryan reynolds um and then exact same you know years before or a few years before a couple of years before um the guy who wrote 
the disappearance of Alice Creed, there's a good article online where he he said the exact same thing. Instead of pounds, instead of dollars, he said, I'm going to write a script that can be made for £5,000. And he set these rules and parameters, which was it had to be shot in his apartment. It could only be three actors. There was no special effects. It had to happen in real time. Um, and I think that movie was probably about a million quid, by 800,000 or a million, ultimately. But, you know, both of them wrote these scripts to, um, out of frustration to, so they could just go and make a damn movie. And I think that yeah. is the best strategy for any a young or beginning filmmaker these days is to, to write a script that, you know, literally super contained, few actors and have have all these rules and with 90 minutes i had a list of about 10 rules um some of them i've mentioned that i i couldn't i wouldn't allow myself to break those rules because you break those rules and it suddenly becomes uh, undoable or more expensive mm. you know with with digital technology now where people are, have got editing software in the bedroom bedroom and um on their laptop um visual effects software that that costs nothing or, or not much. Um, and all these actors out there that just want to work and, and crew that want to work. And, you know, it, 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 that would be the best strategy for someone that is, um, you know, just frustrated that playing the game of getting sales agents and, and applying to BFI for funding and, and, and getting kicks back all the time, you know, just, just yeah. make a write a script that, that um and it's really challenging I, I i love the challenge of how do you sustain suspense for for 90 minutes in one location and yeah. um you know and have rich characters with arcs and strong themes and all these challenges of regular screenwriting if you like how do you do that when you're you're limiting yourself um to to these uh, parameters yeah well it definitely seems the plan these days doesn't it uh, especially with you know, money being that much harder to come by if you're an indie sort of yeah, filmmaker. Yeah, and, and look at Hitchcock and Plansky. I mean, they're they're they're, not, they're the masters of that. If you look at their films, you know, Rope and Lifeboat and Rear Window, um, even even Psycho, I would say, is pretty pretty contained. Um, and then Polanski's The Tenant and um, Rosemary's Baby, and there's a whole um, Knife on the Water. Um, there's a whole you know, in, even in recent years, the the, the plays he's done, they, you know, they're they're really really contained. And of course, they they didn't have to make them for no money. They made them for ten million or twenty million or whatever the budget was at the time, or equivalent to. But but for us lesser known filmmakers and for people starting out, if you have to, you can make that movie for relatively no money. Yeah, great. Well. I think we should leave it there. Uh, it was great talking with you. Um, some useful info and uh, stories there. That's it. And uh, thanks for being with me. All right. Thank you so much, Nick, for inviting me on. Uh, um, really enjoyed it. And I look forward to hearing uh, other podcasts with other filmmakers. Good luck. Yeah, sounds good. Great. Cheers. <laughs>